people do, um, and got roped into a job that I have come to enjoy very much. Okay, so uh, the the Manhattan Project National Historical Park uh, was a big driver in this project, but it wasn't a quick thing. Uh, the idea started in 2004 with legislation uh, directing the Park Service to conduct a study on the feasibility of a park. Now this park is, is unusual in that it's located in three widely separated sites, Los Alamos, Oak Ridge, Tennessee, and Hanford, Washington. And uh, the study went on for quite a while. The final report of the Park Service came out in 2010. And during that time, of course, we had been working locally to uh, gather our community's opinion on what a park in our community should look like. Um, legislation to actually create the park was introduced beginning in 2012, didn't go anywhere. 2013, didn't go anywhere. Finally, it was legislation was signed in December of 2014, and that legislation specified that the park would come into existence when the Department of Energy and the Department of the Interior had reached agreement on on uh, responsibility for different properties and uh, environmental cleanup and that sort of thing. Um, <coughs> so, so it was a long. The point is, it's a long. It was a long process, and the things we'll be talking about a little bit later began well before the park was a certainty. But when you have the idea of a national park coming into your community and bringing in tens of thousands of visitors and you're a small museum, it was a big deal. So 
you know, what are your goals with your exhibits? Where do you want to go? Uh, are they old? Do you need to modernize them? Do you need to kind of bring them into the 21st century? Start thinking about those things as we're going through the process. Amy, Stephanie, you all want to say anything about this? Okay. Um, a little bit of information on our visitors that Amy's going to talk about. Uh, so we're pretty sure that we've got um, a little over 25,000 people um, that, that visit every year, um, visit from most every state um, in the United States, and um, based on our guest books, um, around 100 foreign countries uh, will, visitors from around 100 foreign countries will come and visit um, our museum in a year. Um, around 10 or 15% of our visitors um, are locals, um, either just coming on, them on, on their own. Um, oftentimes, we'll be bringing guests, right? They'll have visitors from out of town. They want to show off uh, the museum to learn a little bit about the history. Um, and most of our visitors are coming for uh, the Manhattan Project history. It's the big draw. If you think about the history of Los Alamos, you think about the Manhattan Project. And that's what most of our visitors are coming to, to learn about primarily, and they probably don't know anything about the rest of our history. Um, so this is what we knew about our visitors um, going into the project, and it's an important thing to think about. Um, if you're thinking about redoing exhibits, is what are your visitors expecting, and what are your, what are your goals then for, for your visitors? And just another point, there is another museum in town that is the Science Museum run by the laboratory, and so we have uh, a role that is very different from that. We don't tell the science stories. We let them do that, and we tell the, the people stories. Ron, you want to go ahead and talk about this? Yeah, so um, we have a variety of stakeholders, and there's some overlap here. We have people connected to our history, includes uh, most, of the, most of the Manhattan Project uh, people are, have, have, uh, are quite elderly at this point, are, and most of them are gone. But um, their, their, children, their children remain and uh, have, a, have a strong connection to our history. The uh, descendants of, of uh, boys who attended the ranch school uh, have a strong connection. <coughs> uh, there, are, there are the people who, who invest their time. Uh, that's our, our wonderful staff, our, our board, our, uh, our volunteers, and the docents. We, we could not exist without them. Uh, so they're stakeholders. And then those who in invest in the organization and uh, many, several of our major donors are not local. Uh, so uh, it's, a, it's a wide variety of stakeholders. So our first challenge after, you know, doing all of our data analysis is, is figuring out, you know, we've got all these stories, we've got a very limited amount of space, so what are we going to emphasize? And we had to set priorities based on the importance of each story. And if people are coming to learn about the Manhattan Project, of course, we need to give them that. And um, so we have to you know, allocate space. And then what resources do we have? What objects do we have in the collection that can tell those stories? And that's you know, still a challenge as we're coming into the, the Cold War era. Um, where else are the stories told? 20 minutes from our museum is Bandelier National Monument which tells a fabulous job of doing the uh, ancestral Pueblo stories. Up just north of us is Puye Cliffs, which is run by Santa Clara Pueblo. Again, they tell the ancestral Pueblo story there in a way that we never can with resources that we don't have. So we need to let people know about that, but we don't need to tell that full story in our museum. 
And so that's just, you know, where else, again, the science stories are told at the other museum in town, so we don't need to worry about those kinds of things. Uh, and then the other challenge with our tiny space, how else can we tell the stories besides exhibits? You know, are there publications we can put out? What sort of interactives can we do that, that may not necessarily have to go in the exhibit? So these, you know, these are not groundbreaking questions, these are, but these are just things to consider as you're, you're going along. Okay, Ron. Well, so, so my main purpose of being here is to provide the board perspective on the project. Uh, and I've divided it into uh, long-term perspective, fundraising, and oversight. And um, so in those general areas, let, let me try to describe what we did on this, this project specifically in these different areas. Um, we developed a, well, thinking about the Manhattan Project, I talked about the timeline a minute ago. Uh, in 2011, we, we finished a strategic plan for what we needed to do to take our museum to the next level to be ready for the Manhattan Project National Park, the historical park, should it come. And at that point, it was very uncertain. Um, we developed cost estimates of what it would take, and they were high. And so the board engaged a fundraising consultants to help us assess the real possibility of raising a significant amount of money. <coughs> um, we got the reports of the consultants, and Somewhat to our surprise, they said we could raise $7 million. <laughs> uh, and, and so we, and that was, that was the ballpark of our estimates of what we needed to do everything. <clears throat> so in the fundraising, we, we began then developing what we, a case for support, which was a, a nice, concise, glossy document laying out all the things we need to do in sort of an elevator speech length with the cost and uh, we as, as we were developing that we shared it shared those plans and those ideas with some of our potential major donors and uh, <clears throat> we're not saying that we give them veto power or or that we do exactly what they want but we look for alignment between what we think we need to do and what their interests are and what they are willing to fund uh, <clears throat> then that, that began, that was the beginning around 2000, fall of 2012, beginning of a multi-year fundraising campaign that formally ended last December, but in fact is still ongoing on case-by-case -case basis. <laughs> uh, in the area of oversight, uh, of course the, the, the board is interested in watching the budget, be sure we stay, stay under budget, um, to uh, look out for any controversial areas and flashpoints uh, you know, Los Alamos exists to, it, it was founded to, to, to build the first nuclear weapons. It exists still to maintain them. Uh, I would say that most people in Los Alamos who, who live there is sort of a self-selecting process. If, if you live there and work there, you've come to terms with that and you think it provides some positive benefit. Not everyone agrees with that view. Uh, the the uh, decisions to, to drop the bomb, in World War II is still controversial. Uh, how you deal with with the threat of nuclear weapons and uh, is, is with us today. It's in the news. So our goal was to um, address those those issues in a way 
that everyone felt that their views had been accurately represented. And rather than to provide an answer of, yes, this is good or that no, this is bad, uh, was to stimulate a discussion and have people think seriously about it. <coughs> uh, and then finally, as, as the project was developing, uh, the board played close, close attention to, are we doing with the project what it, what it was we told our donors we were going to do when we took their money? We had the privilege of working with a really terrific um, exhibit design firm, and I can talk to anybody about that who would like to afterwards. I believe they are in the exhibit hall. They came in with lots of credentials, and we were kind of you know, blown away by them. But the reason we picked them was because they listened really, really well. When we met with them the first time, we, we met with three different firms, and one of the firms we met with, we said, well, we want you to do, you know, we have this iconic object. We want you to tell us how you would do that object. And they said, oh, no, we want to do this with you. No, we want to do, we want you to tell us how you would use this iconic object. And that firm did not get the, did not get the contract. The one who did was the one who worked with us, who listened to us, who asked us questions, went a lot of good back and forth. The communication was paramount. Now, that doesn't mean it was always easy. They were based on the East Coast. We were in the middle of New Mexico. We had you know, this major construction project going on uh, in both our building and in the exhibits. And so it was not always easy. There were times when we were on the phone maybe raising our voices a little bit. But you know, we're the topic experts. And we really felt there were things that were important to us that we needed to get done. And we're also the community experts. As Ron said, there are certain feelings within our community. We're not trying to gloss over the fact that atomic bombs killed hundreds of thousands of people. That's in our museum. But what was the role that Los Alamos played in that? We didn't make that decision. Our scientists did not make that decision. That was up to the politicians in Washington. So, so bringing all that into context. And um, like I said, that, that good, honest communication, I guess, is really the paramount um, thing that you have to have with your exhibit design firm. And, but don't be awed by them. Don't be afraid to tell them what you want them to do. Okay, so this is where things got really difficult. <laughs> I don't know why the slide is bumping off. But we decided that we were going to host a series of public meetings because we really wanted buy-in from our community in changing the exhibits. And the first couple went really, really well. We had great attendance, you know, 40, 50 people were coming. They had a lot of good input. They were excited about what we were doing for the most part. Um, but as time went on and we got more into the details, it got more complicated and more uh, contentious, I would say. Amy, you want to talk about the meeting with John Hopkins? Here's a story about me getting into a fight with one of our stakeholders. Um, at, at one of the, the, the kickoff meeting with our exhibit design firm coming to town, um, we had uh, it was a public meeting, but it was sort of inviting the stakeholders who were really important to us. Um, and I went into the meeting not clear on what the roles were of, of the people who were there. And one of our stakeholders um, was presenting a historical perspective that, from my historian's perspective, I disagreed with. And we ended up getting into an argument over it, um, which didn't need to happen at that meeting because there are other ways of handling that. And I shouldn't have, done, um, <laughs> shouldn't have gotten in that argument with them um, there. Um, but if there were, if we had set, if I was clearer on what the roles were going into that, I would have known that like 
this is a time for everyone to share their opinions and there's like a lot of steps in the process to collect opinions and then for the you know committee of the staff and volunteers who are the interpretive committee to sort through those perspectives and decide which ones like how much weight to give to which ones um, so that was you know one one way to um, improve on that was for if I had gone into that meeting with a clearer sense of what my role is what the role is, is of all the stakeholders in that meeting I get to talk about the red light. Um, the red light is part was part of the design, um, something thought up by the design firm. Um, we have a reflection space uh, that covers the topic of the dropping of the bombs. And we wanted this space to mm, have a certain feeling, a feeling that created tension, um, there's a fantastic videos that were developed for the space uh, that talk about both Trinity and the droppings of the bombs. And we just wanted this space to be a place where people could think critically. Um, and the design firm encouraged us to put a red light in here, creating that feeling of tension and sort of impending stress. <laughs> um, and I was one person who had strong feelings against the red light because I, I didn't like the feeling it gave me um, when thinking about the topic happening in the space. And during a public meeting, we had a, a very heated disagreement where we realized that we may have not fully listened to our stakeholders who were at the meeting because we got very strong reaction against having that light, which in the long run moved us towards um, something that I think has felt more reflective for everyone, which is sort of a softer blue light. Um, and that was just a moment where we realized it's very important to realize that your design firm, yes, they are design experts. And we may be topic experts, um, but we are there for our visitors and our community. And it is important, it's important to listen to their feedback um, and maybe not change everything based on what they, what they want or what they've missed or what they love most, um, but to to really listen to the feedback that you get and strongly consider um, the design choices that you're making. Um, just to add on a little bit to that, that red light discussion. So, you know, all of us were on the committee, the interpretation committee that was, you know, working directly on creating the exhibits and working with the design firm. And the design firm um, had suggested this red light and we sort of were disagreeing on the committee, but we decided like, okay, we can go with it. Um, and then we went to this public meeting and we had, didn't have clear goals for the meeting of what happens if the public at the public meeting disagrees. We were sort of going into it being like, we've got this great design, it looks beautiful and everybody's gonna love it and we just want them to all get buy-in. There's a lot of pushback on the red light and then we ended up getting defensive about that because we hadn't decided what do we do with the public input. Like we were asking questions we weren't prepared to get the answers for. So there was a lot of discussion about like, oh, it feels demonic, it feels hellish, it feels like a stop sign, like it means all of this. Um, and so it became this big, 
you know, point of, of pushback. Um, and so, yeah, we just like, like Stephanie was saying, um, you know, listen to the, to the public, but also be, be clear with them um, at the beginning of these are the questions, um, you know, that are open and these are the questions that are already decided. And if there are things that you want public feedback on, um, then, you know, be willing to accept that. Those. Yeah. And I think that was the key. It was, we went in with a couple of things. One, we were the experts. We knew what we wanted. We knew what things should look like. And we just wanted community buy-in. And that wasn't what our community wanted. Our community wanted to have an actual say and an actual stake. So if you want that from your community, and that is a great thing to have if you're a community museum, then be prepared for that and ask those questions that are the right questions instead of, you know, we kind of put up a wall and said, you know, we know what we're doing and, and thank you for being here and no, we really needed to back off and let them have more input into that process. It all smoothed out in the end and, uh, you know, we, we survived, but, but it was a big lesson for us and it's one that we really wanted to share and, and say, you know, this is where you, you really need to think about what it is you want if you're going to have your community input. But there's a fine line. You also do not want your exhibits designed by committee. You know, it's like writing a report by committee. There's nothing worse. And so you just really need to be careful about what it is that you want from the public. Know that going into it. Ask those questions. Don't ask the ones that you want to be the experts on. And maybe that's not being as transparent as you need to be. So it's, it's a challenge. It really is. It's, it's, you know, what you need to figure out. Um, and, and the other thing is, the, there's just a point on here. Remember that not everyone is living and breathing the process like you are. I mean, this took a lot of time on our part. And we're doing it every day, hours and hours a day. And, you know, the public's coming in after dinner on a Thursday night. And they're, you know, haven't thought about it for two months. And so it was a very different kind of process. And so we're very invested. They are invested, but not to the point we are. And that's, I think, where we got defensive. When working on the exhibits, we did have some internal challenges as well. And uh, Stephanie, why don't you start with that first bullet point, noting that our archives are two blocks down the street from the museum. Yes, we are located about two blocks away um, from the actual main part of the campus. Um, and as important as it is for you to bring along your community stakeholders. It's important for you to bring along the staff that are not on your committee, um, also living and breathing this process. Um, it's really important to figure out someone who is disseminating the information among your staff. Um, whether it's somebody at the meetings who is synthesizing everything and sending it out so that the rest of your staff aren't surprised when they <laughs> hear what's happening or that they suddenly have to supply 600 scanned photographs and they had no idea that was coming. Um, you don't want to be surprising your staff who are already working so hard um, to accomplish everything. You just want to be sure that everyone is clear on what their role is um, and that you are clear on how you get information to everyone who needs it so that they can do their job best. I'm trying to remember if there were any serious problems. I don't. <laughs> um, <clears throat> I, I, I think the only issue the, the board the board was uh, some some somewhat like 
like, like the public meetings in that they weren't living, living and, and breathing it every day either. And so, so keeping them up to date with, with uh, monthly board meetings, all the things that happened in between was, was a challenge just in, in terms of the board staying current. Another thing just with the monthly board meetings that if you have decisions coming up with your design team that are happening on quicker than a month turnaround, you have to figure out a way to get the board's sort of uh, input on, you know, on that. So maybe the board is deciding that over email or having like an emergency meeting of a subcommittee or something. So like if you're used to having things decided on a month to month basis and suddenly you have to make decisions quicker than that you need to put structures in place to figure out a way to get the board looped into those decisions in a timely manner. Let me just mention another, another issue uh, that's a challenge is that uh, the, people, the staff people working on this exhibit design had normal jobs that they were trying to do too. And everyone was really uh, stretched and stressed. And so I want to let them know we really appreciate that. Yeah, and that's that last point. Administratively, it was a little difficult because we had our regular jobs to try and do our lecture series that we were doing, our publications we were doing, and then we were doing this huge project as well. So it, it, uh, there were things that fell off the table. And, and part of that was the communication. You know, communication within the staff, uh, even communication within the committee sometimes failed. You know, we have email, we have phones that we walk around with all the time, and yet we always weren't you know, telling each other things. So, so just, you know, set some structures into place that can help you with that. Again, I'm not sure that there's any groundbreaking information that's coming out of this session, but hopefully it is synthesizing a lot of good information for you to, to do this. We did manage to get through all of this. We had our very exciting grand reopening on December 30th. It did not snow that day. It was a beautiful sunny day. There was snow on the ground, but uh, it was a, a fabulous day and uh, a big ribbon cutting. And so now, you know, the community's coming in, our visitors are coming in, and this is what we're hearing. Most of them are absolutely thrilled. They're like, oh, our little dusty old museum has moved into the 21st century. But we're in this little log and stone cabin, and we still kept that beautiful wooden ranch school western feel. There are the people who, as we just talked about in the keynote, do not like change. And we had a diorama of a living room from 1943. You know, the picture was on the wall and then all the furniture was right there. And that is what the biggest complaint we have. Everybody wants that living room back. Well, I'm sorry, that space is no longer there and that's not how museums work anymore. And we just kind of have to really be nice as we're explaining that to folks. Fewer objects on display, which I still don't believe, but uh, you just want to address that? I count it. <laughs> like walk through the museum with a pen and paper counted. There are actually fewer objects on display, but um, what's more important is that they're more relevant objects. Uh, this was super important as we were dealing with such limited space um, that we pick objects, one, that were iconic to our history, um, and two, that were relevant to the stories being told in those spaces. And I, we've done a pretty good job. Um, there's always room for improvement, um, but there's also room for flexibility. So we can put on other things on display that live in the archives most of the time um, that otherwise wouldn't have been able to be put out. 
what we did with our exhibits is we asked a lot of big questions. As Ron said, we're not going to tell people what's right and right, wrong about atomic bombs. That's not what our community is about. Our community is about developing these things, overseeing these things. And so, but we, ha we can't shy away from what they did either. And so we ask big questions in there, and we give people chances to reflect, and we give people opportunity to feed back and to say, you know, what they think about, you know, not necessarily was it right or wrong to drop the bomb, but what's the role of a scientist in society? That's the Los Alamos story. Those are the things that we want people to think about in the Los Alamos History Museum. And as a result of that, as, as really being contemplative and thoughtful about these questions, we have received, and we will be getting it tomorrow night, an award from AASLH for Leadership in History. So we're very proud of that. We really feel like, even with all the struggles and, and the concerns, that we, we accomplished what we were setting out to do, and that is getting people to really be thoughtful about our history. And so we're, we're, for the most part, very happy with what we're hearing back from our stakeholders. Our, uh, our largest donor, doesn't think we have enough objects on display. He happens to be a collector. So um, we're working on that. But again, it's, it's, uh, there's a balance that you have to have. You know, what are you telling your donors about what, what they can say about the museum? Um, so just to um, real quickly reiterate, we're getting ready to go into the question and answer session. We're going to pass the mic around and, and have you all ask and answer questions. Um, what? Oh, well, <laughs> I will answer all the questions. Okay. So, again, just Ron was our, our board liaison to our committee, uh, the board oversight. All of us ended up playing roles of scholar. Um, I'm not sure we all anticipated that, but there was the scripts were huge and they required a lot of, of input and work, so we all ended up doing that. Um, and, you know, then just the different connections as, as different, different roles. And we did have two other people on our team. We had a, a graphic designer who grew up in Los Alamos and was, was uh, quite helpful in a lot of areas. And then our museum director who served as our project manager. The reason she's not here is because she's going to Manchester, England for a conference on the Inclusive Museum next week, or later this week. So that's why she is not with us today. But uh, as I said at the beginning, this is a round table discussion and so we want to discuss. We want to know what your questions are, what your thoughts are, if you have um, things that you want to talk to us about. You know, so here's the background questions. Your goals, your visitors, your stakeholders. What stories do you have to tell? How do you prioritize those? Um, can they be told somewhere else? What resources do you have in your collections to support your stories and what are your visitors expecting? One of the stories we like to tell is that people come to learn about the Manhattan Project, but they fall in love with the ranch school story. So we devoted a lot of space to that. Um, so questions? Any questions? Comments? <laughs> I'm curious to know what became or what is becoming of the partnership or uh, uh, leadership from the National Park Service in terms of the legislation that was introduced to, for this to become a National Historic Park, and whether any of that effort uh, guided your interpretive planning. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and actually, it did very much guide our interpretive planning, because what we knew with the park coming in as we were doing the exhibits, we said the park is the one who's going to tell the World War II story. We do not, I don't think we even mentioned Pearl Harbor in our exhibit, Stewie. Um, 
so so they're going to tell they're going to give that context for World War II because they are the national storytellers. That's what the park is doing. So we have signed an uh, interpretive and educational agreement with the park. Right now, it's a very nascent park. They do not have, they have a very tiny, they don't even call it a visitor center. It's a visitor contact station. And when people come in, they say, you go see the science over here, you go see the people stories over at the History Museum. And so, and you know, we train their volunteers and, and so we're, we're working on a lot of things like that. that. That will grow over time and hopefully their exhibits will expand over time to tell that, that national story. But yeah, that was a really big consideration going in is we know what they're going to do and so we're going to do our part for our own mission. Uh, let me just add, uh, um, you might, might be interested that the, uh, uh, the Park Service and the Department of Energy are working together to try to find ways to let the public in on a tour-like basis to see uh, properties that are still behind the security fence at the lab, but that were involved in the, in the work of the Manhattan Project. But that's several years away, probably. I was curious if you had a specific project management phased process that was followed, and um, if so, how did you manage um, both internal and external stakeholders and priorities at each phase? Or um, because sometimes in exhibits you experience this, someone wants to give input on a concept, but really you're in more of a construction drawing phase. <laughs> so uh, if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, that happened a lot. <laughs> uh, we had, uh, you know, a project manager with the um, exhibit design firm who's doing most of the project management for us. Um, and so it was, there were very clear phases of, like, we're in the conceptual design, um, and now we're, I forget what came out, like, what they were calling the, the phase after conceptual design. But there were, there were three distinct phases. Um, and it was difficult at the public meetings sometimes to have people coming in, especially if they'd missed the first you know, one or two public meetings during the conceptual phase, say like, oh, I've got an idea. You guys should have a hologram. It's like, well, we've, we're, we're past the conceptual phase. We've decided. Um, and one, one way um, of handling that is just to make sure that people feel listen to so that even if they're giving feedback on something that is at the conceptual phase so like maybe you know in five ten years when we are like starting to redo some of these exhibits we'll keep that you know in the hopper we'll relook at that concept we it's too late in this process to look at that but that is a great suggestion and that will like keep that under consideration i don't know if, if anybody else had anything to to add on to that it's a tricky thing to to balance yeah and it just goes back to that being real clear with your meetings what you want and you know and saying up front when you get to that next phase you know we, we've done the concepts we know what our stories are you know if someone came in and suddenly said oh you have to tell the story of this homesteader it's like well he was here for six months and he really didn't have that big of an impact on the community um you know and so it's 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 just balancing that and doing it in a nice way any other thing oh, we have two more question slides. Um, so my questions are regarding the meetings. Okay. 
Um, one is how many meetings did you decide to have? How many did you actually hold? Um, how did you contact the community to come in and make sure they're at those meetings? And so, and then um, who were they? Were they representative of your entire community or did you find that a certain kind of person tended to come to them? Yeah, those are all great questions. So our original intent was throughout the process to hold a monthly meeting. And we held three, four. Well, we have, including the, the concept, the, the earliest concept one, we held four. And the earliest concept one was an invitation only to stakeholders. And that really kind of was the big kickoff. And then the next three were, they started out pretty big. I think we had 40 or 50 people at the first one, and then we had like 20 or 30, and then we were down to like 8 or 10. And the way we were getting the word out was through our email blasts, through we've got a, a little online newspaper in our community that everybody reads calls, called the Los Alamos Daily Post. We you know put out press releases through them. We, uh, uh, let's see, you know, Facebook, those kinds of things. And so that we just, you know, got the word out in, in kind of all the usual ways. And what we found was that at first there was a pretty good mix of stakeholders and then just interested people in the community who wanted to see what was happening. And then it got down to just very, very close stakeholders to us. And so that was when we, we after that <laughs> last meeting with the big red light discussion, we realized we really were not making, we were, the meetings were not being useful for us and they weren't being useful for our community anymore. And so we said, okay, you know, we feel like we're ready to move forward. We feel like we've gotten input. We're not doing the red light and we, uh, we move forward from there. Thank you. You've talked about the community and your stakeholders. Was there a part of the process at the beginning or maybe elsewhere where you were wondering if you had everybody in those categories at the table? Were you reaching everyone in the community that you wanted to reach? Did you use this process as a way to reach people that you've long wanted to reach and hadn't reached? Something like that? That's a good question. And unfortunately, I think the answer is no. We did not reach people that we wanted to reach that we haven't. Um, and I'm thinking, you know, teens did not get a lot of input. We tried, you know, we had uh, high school history classes that we would um, try and engage but you know there just wasn't any buy-in from them um, so I think we had uh, we had our stakeholders are very invested in us and you know which is great in a lot of ways and they were very active in this process reaching outside of our stakeholders was a lot more difficult and I think that that was a struggle and I I don't know if we have any good advice on how to do that. Um, you know, we live in a small community, which is helpful. Not, not everybody has that advantage. But, you know, trying to get the word out to schools so that you can get that teen audience. We, another group that we miss, there's a huge group of summer students that come into the laboratory every year, uh, postdoctoral students and things like that. We didn't get those folks. Um, so that so so we really did miss uh, some opportunities, I think. And and looking back, if we had it to do over again, would try and, and hit some of those in better ways. Ready? 
Uh, thank you. First, a comment on the um, design. Having worked with some large design firms, I, I concur completely. Control your content. You have to let them be the designer. They're good at that, but they, they won't understand what you're trying to say. It's hard. So you save yourself time and money by controlling your content. The second, I had a question. I work in an Army museum, and we have a soldier history gallery. One of the soldiers is a, a sergeant that worked on the Manhattan Project, so it's nice to hear some of this history. Um, he passed away at a very young age of cancer. I talked to his daughter about his service so we could write up his story, and she expressed that how proud he was to have served in that role and had no regrets even though he knew you know, his service had caused an early death. You mentioned that some of the, the families and descendants have come out. I'm curious if that's something you experience broadly. Is that the feeling of the families who have come back? I'd say that the, the <clears throat> maybe Heather can say something about the families that come back. I'm thinking more in terms of veterans who come back or our children of veterans who say that, you know, I wouldn't be here if, if you, you hadn't developed a bomb. Uh, of course, that, that's a debatable <laughs> position, but, but most of the people whose, whose fathers were headed for Japan uh, feel that way. And as far as the, uh, the, the people who were in service in the Manhattan Project, you know, it's really interesting. We just had a, a veteran who was at Trinity, and he was 94 years old and just passed away. And there were guys who passed away in their 50s. And so it's just really hard to say, you know, this was the cause. I mean, some people we know, Enrico Fermi, yeah, he played with radiation all the time, and he died of cancer, and it was pretty obvious. Oppenheimer also died of cancer, but he smoked like a chimney. And so, you know, that was what caused his cancer, not the radiation exposure. And so there's just, there's, it runs the gamut, and every story is out there. And that's, you know, again, fun things to include in our oral history collections, in our, uh, I shouldn't say fun, that's not really the right word. Fun as a historian, because you get such rich information, right, right? But, um, but fun as, uh, or, uh, but, but important uh, to collect all of those stories, because then you're going to get a broader, um, perspective. Okay. Um, I, you know, I know your story is mainly about the Manhattan Project, um, but you have two other uh, minority populations within your small area, that being the Native American population, where a different story is told somewhere else, which is fine, um, and the Hispanic population in the area. Do you address those populations anywhere within your exhibit? At, because what, what happened to those communities? What, how, how did this project that was imposed in this place affect those communities, and if you do not address that. Was that a conscious decision, and did that also affect possibly um, uh, community participation in uh, throughout your process? That's an excellent question, um, and I think that it gets to the point that we had earlier about if we were bringing in groups um, from outside of our regular stakeholders. Um, and I think that there is room for improvement um, for us on that. Um, we talk about that a little bit in the museum, um, and that was largely um, something that we, one of the decisions you have to make in this process is what is in the exhibits and what is in the programs and what happens other places. And that was one of those um, 
that a lot of that work we're doing um, in, in programs and in our tours. Um, so part of our campus is a Hispano homesteading cabin, um, and that on our tours is where we tell the displacement stories. Um, there is a small ancestral Pueblo site on our museum campus as well. So there are interpretive signs at both of those for visitors who don't take the walking tours. So those stories are told there. Um, and definitely if you take a tour, that is a big part of the tour is telling those displacement stories, what happened to the people um, who were you know, new Mexicans before the Manhattan Project came in. And I think that we have a lot of room to grow um, in the future on that. And when we, you know, in the future, uh, start to work on these exhibits again, we can maybe be more deliberate about bringing in like more stakeholders to expand like what our history is. But also balancing that against the focus of what our visitors are expecting, which is this Manhattan Project story. Um, but one of the things that we did have in mind as our like key design philosophies was inclusion of multiple perspectives. And that's both, you know, around the ethics and morality of atomic bombs, but also, you know, who was involved in the Manhattan Project and who was involved in Los Alamos before, during, and after the Manhattan Project. And it's not all just, you know, white dudes with PhDs in physics. <laughs> it's a lot of them, but there were there were a lot who weren't, so. Hi, um, I'm curious about the impact during your implementation. Um, were you open during the renovations and how were you serving your stakeholders at that point? Oh, that was hard. It was a, it was a tough year. So we closed the museum building in October of 2015 and we moved into temporary space where we had, I think, nine panels on the wall or something like that. I mean, it was just, it was so tiny. It was about 600 square feet. We had as much of a museum shop as we could because we're dependent on, on sales in our shop. And we were in this temporary space. Well, as we were there, the Manhattan Project Park is getting kicked off um, the ground, and so the, the space was owned by our municipality, and they wanted to give space to the National Park Service as well, so the park ranger moved into our little 600-square-foot space with us, and it was a difficult relationship. Um, but we did try and at least, you know, be able to give people, you know, here's information. We did run our tours during that time. Uh, we have an extensive walking tour that goes through our, our one block area that shows all of our history. So we ran our tours. We did have a little bit of interpretation on the walls. We did have docents who were available to talk to, to visitors. And uh, we actually had huge visitation during that year, which was uh, disconcerting because we just didn't have the stuff to show them that we wanted to, but, uh, but we did stay open. Let me, let me just mention that that, that that tiny space now is the Park Service contact station. All right, I'm going to go to this next slide to talk about the transparency and um, just if there, if there, you know, one of the things that is really critical, I go to conferences and hear all the time, oh, my board doesn't do anything. My board doesn't do anything. If you don't have a board that does anything, don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, really, because it's it, you've got to have that support and and that community connection. Um, having a committee member who is a board member really helps keep the communications going well. Um, we talked about earlier, you know, what qualities do you want from your exhibit design firm? 
communication. You want them to be really good communicators, and you want them to listen to you. Um, and then, you know, organizationally, what structures can you put in place to make sure that everybody's talking to each other and, and getting the information out that you need? So, are there any questions related to, to teamwork or, or how to put this all together? So the question is, what structures did we put in place to make this successful? Uh, we had a, well, it started out bi-weekly and then went to weekly and then almost daily call with the exhibit design firm that our committee was involved in. We had a big drop box that all of the plans got dropped into uh, when they were sending us things that everybody had access to. So that was really important so that we could all see those kinds of things. You know, again, nothing groundbreaking here. A lot of email. I, I think we probably needed to have a more set schedule for our committee on our side uh, because we tended to just say, oh, let's meet at this time. You know, we get our calendars out. And I think if we had a little bit more structure to that, it might have been easier to set the rest of our schedules. Um, and especially Stephanie, who works part-time, that really got to be wonky after a while. So, um, so I think having a little bit of structure and then, um, you know, just making sure you're sticking to deadlines, which I think we were generally pretty good about. We did have to push off a little bit. We were hoping to reopen in the fall, and, and it ended up being in the winter. But uh, um, that was not necessarily a communications problem. That was a glass case problem. <laughs> so, so that's just, you know, a little bit of advice there, I guess. Let me, let me mention one thing. We, we started out sharing design documents by shipping six copies of, of large printed documents with sign-off sheets and all that, and, and that very quickly fell by the wayside uh, with the Dropbox and electronic shipping. We, we still had to do sign-offs locally and send a digital copy, but... Uh, Daily calls sound like a lot uh, for the design firm. If they were here and were able to speak frankly, how do you think it went for them? It seems like a lot of input. I think they probably thought we were pains in the butt. Um, and, and in a lot of ways we were. I mean, we were very demanding. We wanted what we wanted and we wanted it to be right. And we, uh, you know, part of it was just because we were so far away, we really had to communicate. And, um, you know, we, we had a, a problem with their, their original script writer, and um, it was just real important that we work through that together and not get, not get huffy and not get too upset with each other. And, and you know, they, they had someone on their side who was very much the customer is always right, and so that helped. <laughs> make, sure, make sure your exhibit design firm has somebody who does that. <laughs> uh, anything else? Yeah, it was really only the last couple of weeks before they came out to do installation, and so it it, it wasn't you know during the whole process during the whole year long process. Um, but yeah, I think they probably thought that we were difficult to work with, because we were pretty demanding. Other teamwork questions. All right, well let's go to this last bit, and that is the the transparency. And this this really was, you know, the hard part as we've talked about. Um, 
And I want to ask you, this is supposed to be roundtable, I want to throw this out. What pitfalls do you see about having with public meetings? Okay, so nobody coming to them? Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. And that's you know, what we ran into toward the end. And it was, it was disappointing in some ways, and it was sort of a relief in others, because then it gave us the excuse to say, oh, we don't have to do this anymore. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and so it's just, you know, you've got to know who your folks are that you want coming to these things in, in one way and then be able to get the word out. So that's a good. No, we did not. Uh, did you repeat that question? Yeah, the question is, is did we reach out to our visitorship that was not local? And, and we really didn't. Um, as we were doing the exhibit designs, because we are a community museum, we felt we wanted the community to have the say in this. Our visitors, we know what they're coming to see. They're coming to learn about the Manhattan Project, and so we'll, we'll give them that. Do you have plans to continue the conversation now that the exhibit's open and either provide some structure for visitor feedback or a continued dialogue to adjust, um, assess the uh, efficacy of what you've created? All right. Uh, so a couple of things. We have, um, we, we set up the exhibits to be flexible so that we can change them out over time. Uh, Stephanie had mentioned our reflection space, and we have two different videos that we put in there, and that's where we ask these big questions like, what is a role that the science, a scientist has in society, and those kinds of things. And so that is one way that we are gathering visitor feedback. We also have you know, the, the typical exit book out of, out of one of our buildings. But one of the things that we discovered in this process, we know a lot about the Manhattan Project. We've got a pretty good collection. We know a lot about the ranch school. We've got a pretty good collection. Well, suddenly we're expanding. We're telling 70 years of post-war, Cold War history. Los Alamos had a huge role in this. And we realized there's no scholarship on this. All of the books that are written about the Cold War are about geopolitical stuff that's going on. And so how do we tell this community story? And we don't have any scholarships, so we're trying to put together museum exhibits without a really good basis. So we are going to start as an organization to explore those stories and say, okay, you know, what oral histories can we collect? What objects do we need to illustrate these stories? What can we do to, to better tell the story? And so our goal for our exhibits is to continue to evolve them over time and not let... we, we, we our philosophy is we don't have any permanent exhibits in the museum anymore. Yeah, we're always going to tell the Manhattan Project story, but it's not going to look the same every time you come in. And so we're, we're using community feedback, community meetings uh, to, to get ready to, to talk about these Cold War stories. And as part of that, the, it's going to trickle down into Manhattan Project and other things. We don't have any specific visitor feedback uh, set into place yet other than those, those two things that I mentioned. Uh, we do hope over time to to uh, do more of that, but we're, we're just not at that step yet. So some part of your story is um, controversial to some people, a contested history. Um, I also work at a place with contested history, and I'm trying to imagine if we were having a public meeting like this, um, 
anxiety levels would be very high that the contest might get out of hand and that the damage done would not necessarily be worth that conversation in that context. So I'm wondering how did you handle uh, sort of anticipating the um, sort of quote unquote dangerous nature of, of unstructured input from you know who the unknown. Um, I can totally imagine the anxiety <laughs> before such a meeting. You keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> um, we, 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 we have had some interesting interactions lately with museums in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki and have exchanged some staff. And uh, we, we intend for that program to continue, but uh, my opinion is we take it slow. And I, I think you need to establish personal relationships and you need to establish trust before you can really move on to the really difficult questions. I just want to add on too um, that when we, the reflection space that we have in the museum is new for us before we just sort of told the story and one of the main points of the Manhattan Project story now is to ask visitors like what their, like how they react to it, what their reflections are. And so like the fight that I got into with the <laughs> uh, stakeholder at our, at our first stakeholders meeting, the design team's response to that was, these are the sort of conversations that we want to have happen in the museum. Like, not in that tone, but we wanted to have, you know, we, we don't want to have, like, this is the story. It was, these are the issues that are important for you to think about as an informed citizen of the world. Like, start thinking about it. So it's going to be tense in some of those public meetings, but if that's important to you as a museum, it's a good way to learn how to start opening up those dialogues in the museum. Following up on that, that same thing in terms of concern about contentious meetings and stuff, did you all facilitate your own meetings or did you, because naturally you've got, you know, the ec we are the experts and then you've got, well, we are the people, come on. Um, and sometimes facilitating your own meetings can, can exacerbate that a little bit. Did you make, did you um, facilitate your own meetings or um, make a choice to bring in a more neutral facilitator who could handle that in some ways? Yeah, that's a, a good question, and we did not. The, the, the exhibit design firm facilitated the first meeting, and then subsequently it was our museum director who is, was the project manager who was essentially the facilitator for those meetings, and I think it, that could have been one of our problems too, is that if we would have had somebody who was a little more neutral maybe to come in and, and smooth out some of the rough edges and say, you know, you guys don't have to get defensive about this, they're just giving you your input and those sorts of things. But again, it goes back to that, that planning. What are you looking for from your community? What input do you want? And, and that goes to your question too with this contentious uh, history. You know, we were not going to say Oppenheimer is a terrible person in our museum. Oppenheimer is very loved in our community. And so, you know, there are certain things that we just that were sort of givens going in, and we knew that our community w was going to buy into that. If we had somebody who came and argued with us on that, I think we would, again, it goes back to be polite, thank you, and this is our community story. And so you've just got to, it's, it's a, always a balance. How do you keep your history relevant without making people mad? 
how do you change your museum without making people mad? What's your relationship with the Science Museum? And if there's any conflict over funding, how do you uh, navigate that? Uh, that's a good question, too, because there are two museums in our little town of 18,000 people. The, the Science Museum is actually run by Los Alamos National Laboratory, and they have a really big building and a really big budget. And we are a nonprofit organization that has a really small building and a struggling budget. <laughs> and so, um, and so the, even though the laboratory runs the Bradbury Science Museum, they have started a, their own nonprofit association to try and raise money, to try and do memberships. And that's got us a little bit uncomfortable. But we do a lot of programs together, and we, because it is a small town, because they are also involved with the National Park through the laboratory, we have a lot of things that we do together. And so we work together pretty well for the most part. Let me just add, I, I, th I think it works because our topic areas are really quite well-defined well and distinct. Any other questions or thoughts on this? It's supposed to be a round table. To s oh, we've got another one over here. Thank you. So um, I was intrigued by what you said about having somebody who is kind of the designated communicator after, you know, after each meeting who um, would keep all the stakeholders informed. Like, how did you have a consistent person who did that? Did you, you know, like designate that with each meeting? And like, what, you know, what format did you find best? I say this because I'll be um, likely embarking on a multi-agency, you know, many stakeholder project very soon. Good luck. Um, so, so basically, yeah. So basically, the project manager, um, and both both the exhibit design firm's project manager and our project manager. So, with the exhibit design firm, it was very much, you know, after every phone call, she was emailing everybody and said, "This is what we talked about. This is who's doing what next." And then the same thing with our public meetings. Our project manager, our museum director, would put together, you know, here's what happened at the meeting and. Um, and so people who came to the meeting, we collected their emails, we would send them that information. And so that they were still hopefully engaged. We found the engagement dropping off, and that was when we, we decided to dispense with those meetings. But, uh, but it is really important to have, and, th and it, again, it's a communications tool. This is, it's minutes of the meeting, you know, here's what happened, and if there are to-dos, who is doing it, and if there's a deadline on when it needs to be done. That, that really needs to be communicated. That's really important. All right, should we all get up and do a jumping jack and <laughs> kind of get moving? So we, uh, you know, our, whoops, go back. There we go. So there's our contact information, our website. If uh, you have any questions and want to get a hold of any of us, uh, I cannot say enough about our board of directors and especially Ron who's been with the organization for so long and worked so hard on this project. We have a very um, engaged and active board. If you need uh, a board member mentor, uh, we, can, uh, we can probably help you out with that. We uh, are, um, you know, as I said, we're, we're like a lot of organizations. We are just trying to get through. There may not be any groundbreaking stuff here, but hopefully it's brought it all together for you so that you have questions that you can ask, things that you can move forward with. 
and uh, good luck in your projects. Thank you. And if everybody could please fill out the little yellow forms that are out and just leave them on the end of the table, there'll be a volunteer who will come in and pick them up. Thank you.